Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. This is a very exciting episode of What's Your Story with Sam and Amy because it is our second live Mom 2.0 version of What's Your Story with Sam and Amy. And Mom 2.0 is, Amy and I have a real passion for this conference. It's the number one conference for moms. We have attended in person many, many times. It's run by the extraordinary Laura Mays, and we're just both passionate about the audience and also just the agenda and everything that the conference gives us. And so we were so excited to introduce everyone today to Alicia Menendez, who is not just a TV anchor, but she also has a best-selling book. She's a mom of two, and we know that you will have a lot of things to glean from her wisdom. Yes, and I'm sure you've seen Alicia on American Voices, on MSNBC on the weekends and the evenings, an incredible show that I tune into every week. But we have a lot of questions for you. Alicia, one of the things that's tricky after reading your book, The Likeability Trap, is that I kind of like second guess all the things you say because I'm thinking, is she thinking about being likable in this moment? Do a lot of people say that to you? Yes. <laughs> no one has said that to me. Do not inception that into people's minds, Sam Edis. <laughs> well, it's an interesting point, Sam. It really is. But I mean, well, to that point, though, he wrote The Likeability Trap. Why? I care a lot about being well-liked. Uh, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I'm a sensitive person. I am a cancer, born in July. So it's like real, real deep cancer. And I'm people pleaser. And, you know, part of that, I think, has to do with the fact that I am a woman who was raised in America and across cultures. We socialize girls to think about themselves in relation to others. I think that can be a superpower. I think when that is empathy um, and consideration for others, there's nothing better. I think where it becomes a challenge for women and where it became a challenge for me was when everything I did and said was dictated and influenced by how other people would perceive it. And as I started to get into my 30s, I began to realize what that care for likability was costing me, both sort of emotionally when I would put my head down at night and I would tick through every social interaction I'd had during the day and wonder what was awkward and what didn't land. The cost at work where I felt I wasn't really showing up as the leader that I knew I could be. And so I originally imagined writing like an eat, pray, love for likability, which would have been a much more fun book where I would have gotten to eat gelato and do yoga and let it all go. And instead I interviewed women because that is what I do. And there were lots of women like myself who cared a lot, but there were also women who didn't give a damn. And what became interesting to me was that even those women especially if they were ambitious, especially if they were in male-dominated fields, felt they paid a price for being so brazenly themselves. And so that question, like why, why, whether a woman cares or doesn't care, is she still running up against this expectation that she should show up in a certain way? That became sort of the, the core thing I wanted to grapple with. It seems like it's not just the fact that you're a woman and that we all deal with this. And I'm sure so many of the moms listening right now are nodding their head vigorously. 
But also, you were the daughter of a New Jersey political operative. So your whole life, you grew up in politics. That must have also shaped your perspective on likability. Yeah, I mean, when you are part of a public family, you know, I think there are so many of us that are raised to believe that when you go out into the world, you don't just represent yourself, you represent your immediate family, you represent your community, you represent so much more than yourself. That is was particularly acute because I was literally part of a public family. And as you know, because you have both worked in politics, a candidate's favorability determines whether or not they get to keep their jobs every two years, every four years, every six years. And so it was very real to me early on that being likable and being perceived favorably had a direct correlation to stability and job performance. And and that is also part of what I wanted to grapple with. Because I think it's really, it would have been really easy to write a book that was like, just don't care. Like, just like, let it go. Well, that's not actually how politics or business or the PTA works. People like doing things with people who they like. And, and that is real. One question I had about what you just said, how old were you? When you figure this out about the fact the the correlation between favorability of a politician and their job and being elected, like what did you take from that? Did somebody explain it to you? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's so easy to look at it retrospectively and make it seem as though it was always crystal clear. I don't think I pieced together my personal attitudes about likability until I really started doing the work of this book. But I think it shows up in in really subtle ways. Like, you know that your parent is vying for their job every year and a half. And you know that some of that is tied to how not only they show up, but you show up. Like, you are in campaign ads. You are in little pamphlets. Like, you know you are part of a package. And that package is being assessed and evaluated. And I think, you know, especially as you become a teen and, like, every teens, parents in America are having conversations about like, don't do this, don't do that. There is this added layer of you could be jeopardizing something that is not yours to jeopardize. And so I, I don't know that I was piecing it all together then, but I think when I look back at it now, that was definitely a piece of the larger puzzle about wanting to be elected. I think I would have been like this if I had, a, you know, a a dad who was a school principal. Like I think so much of this is baked into who I am and so much of it is about being female and being Latina. Like there is a huge cultural piece to this. You know, one woman I interviewed says Latinas are raised with a PhD in graciousness that, you know, we are um, culturally expected to tend to others. And so I think there, there was a lot at play of which that was one small piece. How do you communicate this to your own children today? Oh, I think about this all the time, and I'm not sure my children are quite yet old enough. They're, I have two girls. They're four and two. And so what I grapple with most is there are people come to me and they'll say, well, why didn't you make this a parenting book? This could have been a great parenting book. And I understand that instinct, but that presumes that there is something that we can teach our children, that this is still an individual issue rather than being a structural and a systemic issue. So I do have, especially with the older one, because I have more of a sense of who she is. She tells you exactly what she wants. She demands exactly what she wants. She goes to the playground, climbs to the highest heights. She doesn't care if she gets dirty. She will tell you exactly what to do. And, and so my job is to preserve all of that 
what I grapple with and what I don't have a great answer for is the fact that one day I will send her into a world that as of this moment does not reward girls and women for showing up in that way, or it rewards girls and women up to a certain point, at which point they are told that they are too much, that they have to round off their edges, that they are too direct, too assertive. And what really wigs me out is that if she were the complete opposite, if she were really nice, like really like sort of was like whatever you want, whatever's best for the group, she would be told that she was lovely and everybody loved her, but she didn't have what it takes to lead. And so that is what explodes my brain. I think it's really interesting. Like I personally have decided that I have to not care what people think in order to like have a career, right? Because I'm never going to be, I'm never going to be nice enough or direct enough or anything. But I also, Amy, feel like I've watched you evolve through that in the past few years that I have known you, right? Like I think that finding where that sweet spot is for yourself, especially when you are a public person, which increasingly so many more of us are, that I think it is unrealistic to imagine that women are going to be like, I know exactly the type of leader that I want to be. I know exactly the type of mother that I want to be. I know exactly the type of wife that I want to be. And I know how I want to curate my Instagram so that I can communicate this properly at all times to all people. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I think that like, I mean, I've spent, I spent most of my life deeply caring what everybody thought to the point where it held me back in a million different ways. And I just think that like, you're not like, I don't think that in this country we know how women should lead or who they should be. I think it goes exactly to what you're saying. Like, there's just no... Well, I think that there's just so many options for men, right? They, they don't have to fit one mold. And I think that's what it is. And I think this actually leads me back to it's it's the whole focus of a lot of my work, which is keep women in the workforce by showing them that there's a real path to having a successful professional and personal life. And only by showing them and giving them that vision, can we keep more women in the workforce so that we do have more role models so that it's not just the one woman at the top of the company that informs what other people think a leader looks like, right? So I think part of it is that there's so few female leaders to look to that we don't have the opportunity to say that's, you know, one of thousands and thousands of women leaders that you have seen. And so I'm going to be one of those as opposed to the one. Right. You can say, like, I'm more of a Roz than a Cheryl, right? That you had like so many names at your disposal that you could just pick them. I will say there was a profound moment, though, that happened during this past presidential election that I think sort of speaks to the future that you're envisioning. And that is that as you both know, ordinarily, when someone's name is in contention to be vice president or to be considered as a running mate, people generally demure, right? Like they go on the Sunday shows and people say like, Amy, like, you know, it's being buzzed about that you could be, you know, the vice president. And people always be like, no, 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 no. I'm just focused on. And then they list their portfolio. And this time you had all of these women and all of these women of color saying, Yes, I'm very interested in that job. Yes, I think I would be great at it. Let me tell you why I would be great at it. And, and part of what's interesting is that that happened, period, that we were not accustomed to seeing that from anyone, much less a woman of color, but that also they all did it, right? Like you watched all of them make the case for themselves and that then became normalizing. It, it didn't, no one stood out because they did that. And I think that that is where we want to be headed towards. That is at least the tiny piece of the puzzle that I think women themselves can control. 
One thing that you mentioned early on, which really resonated with me, and I bet a lot of our, our listeners right now, is when you described yourself as like after a party or after a social interaction, you would lie in bed and be like, "Ooh, I wish I'd done that differently and kind of rethinking all of your interactions. And I think that plagues so many of us. How have you overcome that? I haven't, Sam. I'm going to go to sleep tonight and think about everything <laughs> awkward I said today. But I think knowing that it has that it has a name, it's called rumination, right? It's like you start with like a thought and all of a sudden it becomes about a thing that happened in the fourth grade and why I'm a terrible person and like everything is unraveling. But for me, it's about knowing that it happens and and catching myself and breaking that pattern and saying, do you know that to be true or was that your perception of what happened? I am not great at it, which is also why across the board, one of my easiest, like you can do it today, number one recommendations, so obvious, you should have a WhatsApp chat, a group text, like whatever, signal, whatever you feel, a group of people, in my case, a group of women, all happen to be Latina, lateral to me, who know what makes me great, who see my full potential, who also see um, where it is that I could improve, whom I can bring things back to and say, hey, this thing happened. Am I making a big deal of it? Or is there actually something that needs to be fixed here? And I find having a core group to whom I feel like it is totally normal that I go to with those questions and who I can trust that they won't just always be like, no, 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 you're the best, you're the greatest, you didn't do anything wrong. People who can be real with me. I think that is like a very easy way to have a gut check. And now for a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen 
a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Talk to us about your identity as a Latina woman. You had a white mother do you ever feel or did you ever feel apologetic for the fact that you were, quote, half Latina? And I know that you married a Latino man. And how does all of this play out in terms of your own sense of identity? It's part of what the term Latina, Hispanic, Latinx as catch-alls complicate, which is both of my parents are white, right? My, my father is Cuban, is of Cuban descent, but racially we are white across the board, which as a community in the conversation we're having with ourselves, there's privilege and hierarchy there. But my mom and dad raised us in a place that was overwhelmingly Latino. We grew up in Union City, New Jersey. It was where the Cubans who didn't go to Miami went. Um, it was called Havana on the Hudson. By the time I was growing up there, it was um, a lot more Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Colombians. And so most of the kids I went to school with, most of the people I went to church with, most of the people who lived in my neighborhood were Latino. And so to me, I was immersed in a way where I just thought it was a majority experience until I went to high school and I went to a private high school outside of where I lived. And for, for the first time, it's like, where are all the other kids who have this experience and was doing those translations that you do where, you know, my friend, I was dancing in my friend's quinceanera, which is her sweet 15. And one of my girlfriends at school very sweetly asked, well, does she not expect to live to 16? And it gave me the opportunity to explain, like we celebrate at 15. It's a very similar celebration. But for the first time, I was the one doing all of that cultural translation for someone else. And yeah, it is, it is important to me. It is how I see myself. I feel very anchored in it. Both of my grandmothers played a very large role in raising us. They were with us all the time. Um, my paternal grandmother didn't speak English for most of that time, but we would like sit around and watch Spanish 
telenovelas together and we would watch The Price is Right and she would laugh at things that I didn't think she understood the joke about. So, you know, it's like, and it's there. To me, it is both a cultural identity, is a political identity, and one that I feel very, very grounded in. And one that now that I am a mother, I think a lot about how I make sure that my girls have that sense of pride, that sense of exposure, that sense of a people and a place that they come from. So tell us about raising your girls. Like, where will they go to school? What's the community like that they're growing up in? You were in Miami. Now you're in New Jersey. So, of course, Amy, you ask all the hard questions because the answer is, I don't know. Like, it's, I, I think I think in some ways you and I are probably in, in, a, in a similar spot on this, which is we, my husband and I, had both been pretty transitory as as people. And we loved that. Like my husband was a campaign person. I think you did the Obama campaign. And so like he lived in Iowa and Texas and Puerto Rico. And even over the course of our relationship, we've lived Miami, DC, New York, and and now in New Jersey. And so we're confronting that thing that you confront when you have been some semi-nomadic, which is what is fair for kids? How much of that can you do with kids and call it an adventure and know that they're adaptable? And, you know, before we had kids, we, we would talk about the fact that we were like, you know, we weren't raised with very much structure and we want to give our girls structure. And like, there's going to be places for them to put things and systems and processes. And then we realized, oh my goodness, we don't know how to do that. Like we would not be the right people to do that. And it helped us really value what we had instead, which was you can throw us into any situation and we'll figure it out. You know, like we will make it work. And I do value that and I'm happy to give that to them. But I don't know the answers to a lot of those questions. Like I've got a four-year-old in pre-K four. She's very happy there. But like, even when we talk about moving or anything else. She says she wants to live in this house forever, which we'll see. I had this like very arbitrary thing. So I grew up in one community, went to one public school system my entire life and just always envisioned that for my kids. And they're actually right now, they're in that public school system because we just moved to Ohio. But like, do I think they'll be there forever? No. Like, I just realized my husband and I are not those people. Like to your point, like we are going to be moving probably, you know, and my kids will get different bones than I had about who they are and, you know, their adventures and everything like that. But it might also be partly the world too. Like the world has made us, has given us an ability to be more mobile as well. I mean, Sam, what would you say about all of that? I think that kids require a certain level of stability, but that that stability doesn't necessarily come from a physical place. It comes from feeling safe with their family, right? And so your family is home rather than the physical place being home. So I think the most important thing is, for the kids to feel confident and stable. So that's number one. We moved our kids across the country when they were one, three, and five. And now my kids are 15, 14, and 11. And when I even just talk about moving to a different part of Los Angeles, my 11-year-old freaks out and says he wants to live in this house forever. Alicia, there's two personal things I really want to ask you about. The first is about how you met your husband, because my understanding is that it was not love at first sight. And then the second thing, as I want to ask you about, is your parents' marriage and how that impacted you? Well, let's see. We met, he was, he had worked on the Obama campaign and I was writing an article for a trade publication about the election. And he agreed to be interviewed because he was writing about the Latino vote. 
And he just clammed up. Like he was giving me yes and no answers to questions that were not yes and no questions. And I was like, well, why did this guy agree to this interview? This is useless to me. And meanwhile, he's like, why is this woman being so pushy with me? Like she's writing for a trade publication, calm down. And then I went and worked at a think tank and he went and worked at the White House and he was my point of contact at the White House. And I always on the phone found him very brusque because he was working at the White House and he was like moving from thing to thing to thing. And I at that time was doing analysis spots on television. He was like, who is this child who is, you know, giving political analysis? And then we met in person and I was just very struck by him. We um, had a group dinner together that night. I learned a lot about him and it provided so much more context for me to who he was and why he was the way he was. And I think about it a lot in the context of it's nice when we have strong feelings about someone, those strong feelings can move in, in either direction. And that very often like that reaction is about the fact that that person reveals something to us about ourselves. Like in this case, I think it very much was that where we are different, we're very different, but where we are the same, we are very much the same. And I was responding to the parts of us that were actually very much the same, right? Where I'm like, why are you so loud? Why are you so um, direct? Why are you all of these things that I am too? And yeah, and then, you know, we uh, started dating. We lived in DC for a while. Um, we had a period of time where he got offered a job in Miami and he moved to Miami and I moved to New York and we stayed together. And then I got offered a job in Miami, which when you work in media, English language media feels like a Thing that will never happen. Um, and so it really felt like the universe was aligning to make all of these very different things that we wanted actually line up. And it was a real blessing because part of the reason we had wanted to move there was he had a dad who was older. We got to spend six years, have both our babies in Miami. Um, and his dad passed last year. And so I think about the fact that like we just, we had so much time that that wasn't a given. And that feels like such a blessing. And then when you were in college, your parents got divorced. I think oftentimes when we think about divorce, we think of the impact on young kids. What was the impact on you as a college student? I think sometimes we overframe divorce as just an ending when you can look at divorce with an incredible sense of accomplishment. My parents were married for 27 years. That is a very long period of time. And so I look at that and I say, that's amazing. Like you built a life, you built careers, you built a family, and we all have gone on to be happy and okay. And like, I think that that is one of the elements of divorce that we don't talk about enough, which is, I think like it has worked out for everyone. And, you know, I think that is part of the lesson for me is like, you you work as hard as you can at it and also like there there is no shame in saying like this no longer works and this is no longer okay speaking of parenting and parenthood and circling back to your girls for a second who is the primary parent for your daughters is there one i think like a lot of um a lot of people where both parents work my husband does a, a like he he is outside in the morning for the school bus. He is um, he's often the one making dinner at night. Where there is where there is a shift is is in the mental burden. Like I am still the one who's like 
uh, camp deadlines are coming up. Got to register them for camp or, you know, like, oh, no, it's Tuesday. It's blue and orange day. We got to remember all of the remembering. I think we would both agree still falls to me. And part of that is personality. Right. And the fact that, like I said, like I after I put my head down on the pillow and think about all of the things that um all of the strange social interactions I've had that day. The secondary thing I think about is like, what are the things, who's the kid who I'm going to forget to bring to school tomorrow? Like that, that is all the stuff that happens. But you know, when we lived in Miami, I traveled a lot for work and I really, that meant that he was the primary parent in terms of if there is an emergency at school, who do you call? And I really had to train up the school administrators to understand like I know there was an emergency and I know you called me but really there's a reason I put him down as parent A and even one time I went into the school and one of the administrators was like you know your daughter told on you she says that Carlos cooks dinner every night and I was like he does he's like he does he does like that that should be totally normal wow yeah I mean I, I don't know if you both feel this way but I also think it's like I think there are people who decide these are the types of people we're going to be and then they are those people. And then there are people who feel their ways through life's experiences in the interest of figuring out who they will become on the other side of that. And I think part of like, it's not just moving. It's like our lives have been in constant states of flux in multiple ways as it relates to our careers and what we do. Neither of us is the type of person who's been at the same job for 10 years. And And so all of these things are things that we constantly reevaluate. And I would say week to week, day to day. Do you feel like when you get to drop off in the morning or pick up your kids, like you're code switching, like now I am in mom mode and I'm trying to make mom friends. What has that been like for you? I feel like I have made a real decision to show up as this person, this and by this person, I mean a person who works and a person who mothers all of the time. In part, that is because of the nature of my work, where sometimes I'll be at the bus stop being like, hold on, hold on, I just got to take a call. Like, I have to fuse both of those things. And because I want to be friends with the type of mom who's okay with that, even if she's not living that life herself. And I also feel like there is a unique privilege of the, the work that I do in the position that I'm in, which is it's not a normal job, right? It's not normal in the sense that it's not like in an organizational structure, you can see who manages me and who I manage and like who then is looking to me for leadership. I'm sort of, I'm a floating entity as it relates to to my job at MSNBC. And so I think about the fact that like being honest about the fact that like I'm not going to put on my video for this call because my kids are running around in the background Or I am going to put on my video for this call and you're going to see my kids running around in the background. Or I need to hold on for one second. I have a child who's asking for something. Like I feel like that is um, both a privilege, right? Not everyone gets to do that um, depending on where you are in your career and in your company hierarchy. But it also is, um, is to me a responsibility, right? Like I have the capacity to normalize that for other people and to say, of course, I get it that you have a kid or of course, I get it that you have caretaking responsibilities and that that is going to happen alongside all of the work that you do. And I do think that that was one of the advantages of the pandemic is that like for those of us who try to keep things very neat and tidy and very separated, it was no longer possible in in ways that in many ways were detrimental to us. But where I look for a silver lining, that silver lining was we had to face the fact that that people are trying to do, do and be a lot of things all at once. And 
I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have a, one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances and the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now for a quick break. So I want to ask a question about your career. 
How did you end up in front of the camera? Was that your goal? No, I thought I would uh, graduate from college, go to law school, even took the LSAT. I basically was going to live your life, Amy Nelson, and um, and then run <laughs> and then run for office. And I was working on campaigns and working on press side of stuff and just realized how like we we on the campaign were trying to set a narrative every day, but really the press was deciding what the narrative was that was set. And as someone who had never had a plan B, like all of and and had never thought about the fact that there was more than one way to influence people and have impact than the way that was right in front of me by virtue of growing up in a house with two public servant parents. And that all of a sudden became fascinating to me. I was like, what are they doing over there? How do you even do that? What are jobs that would look like? And I got myself, I think off of Craigslist, that's how old I am, a job at a television station in Westchester booking guests. And I booked guests for a political talk show. I learned what makes a great guest. I learned a lot I know about producing by being in that newsroom and asking questions like, what is MOS? It's man on the street. What is SOT? It's, uh, you know, it's sound on tape. I learned. That's how I also learn. Like, I don't necessarily learn by sitting in a classroom or reading a book. I learned by doing. And so it made a lot of sense. And then they let me do a few on-air things while I was there that gave me the confidence that I could do it. And then as I want to do, it's like, well, I think I'll just go work at Rock the Vote and, you know, try to affect change there. And, and part of what ended up happening was that because I had a little bit of that grounding in production and television, then when they needed someone to go on TV um, as an analyst, as someone who could speak on behalf of the organization, I started doing that. And that led me um, down this path. And the the biggest challenge of my career was trying to to swing into not being an organizational person or a political person or a policy person and instead being a full-time media person, meaning having a job in media that paid me full-time. And that came in 2012 when the Huffington Post launched their streaming network. And that was where um, I had my first hosting job. So we're going to do a speed round, ask you some fun, more lighthearted questions. Okay, Alicia, what book are you reading right now? Uh, Phoebe Robinson's, uh, I believe it's called You May Not Sit on My Bed in Your Outdoor Clothes. That approximates the title. Also, Minda Hart's Right Within. Highly recommend. Who leaves you starstruck? Oh, Oprah. What is your morning routine? Okay, so the two-year-old wakes up and comes and wakes me up. And we go downstairs together and she asks for a yogurt and then I give her a yogurt and uh, plop her in front of the television where I then check on all of my um, emails that have come in from the night before, read the news, get um, things ready for the big girl who I then have to, because she's now like a teenager, we have to go wake her up in time for school and um, bring her downstairs, get her fed, get her in her uniform make sure she catches the bus. And then I start thinking about what my morning routine is. <laughs> my morning routine is very much dominated by other people at this point. If I'm lucky, I wash my face, brush my teeth somewhere in there. Who is your dream person to interview? Well, I would say Sonia Sotomayor is like is definitely up there. But I would also say that part of what I've learned doing so many interviews is like a great interview is a person who shows up on that day wanting to be interviewed. Like there is nothing worse than you're when you're like, you have done this under duress and I am now pulling everything out of you. Like sometimes people be like, that was a great interview. And I'm like, I, that person showed up ready to talk. And sometimes I'm like, wow, I really prepared for that. And that was a nothing burger. 
So Lou is joining us. He's our male perspective on the show. And Lou has been listening to the entire conversation. And now he's going to ask a question. Being a public figure is something that I know nothing about, you know. Um, and when we interview people, sometimes we ask questions that they don't want to answer, you know, because they don't want that part of their life exposed or whatever. I don't I don't know. They Maybe they just they just want to keep it private. Um, why do public figures do that? Why do they not? want to share that is is this something that happened that you saw you was like I don't want to be I don't want that to happen to me I think that even when we're public people there are things to us that are so precious things we love so much that we want them to be our own and we don't want to share them and I think we have gotten to a place where we expect public people to bleed for us and in front of us and I don't think that that is a fair expectation and I think in general we are all rethinking our relationship to privacy. I think that is something that sort of the proliferation of social media and the fact that we all think we look into each other's lives, see each other's lives has just fundamentally shifted. I think about it a lot now, Lou, as a parent, where I'm like, how much of my kid's life is it fair for me to share? Um, And so in as much as I'm grappling with these questions, I think we're all living through a moment where we are increasingly all thinking about how much of ourselves do we want to share? How much of sharing ourselves serves us? And what of our life is truly our own? And what is shared and um, and what sharing is actually sharing a little too much? Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you all. All right. Bye. What did you think of that? I mean, so I know Alicia a little bit, and she is a brilliant, thoughtful voice and a leader. And I felt like that podcast was a rumination on a lot of really tough topics that impact all of us. And she's just, she's got a real voice. I mean, I feel like I need to walk away and think about everything we just talked about. How about you? I really loved when she talked about how transient like she and her husband are, but that they they thought they should have these like really stable lives for their kids and that they realized that's just not who they are. That was so fascinating. Her husband's awesome. Carlos is like this brilliant, super fun guy. I mean, I knew him many years ago, but incredible person. And, you know, he's also from a political family. Right, right. His grandfather was the president of Cuba. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, it's really interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I would imagine that's something they had in common is that they're both from these wildly political families. Well, and it's interesting for Alicia, too, because she's both a journalist who needs to be, you know, hand like what she said, not not part of the news, but, kind of, you know, reflecting on it and and the daughter of a sitting U.S. senator. And I think I don't know, you know, like who else is that? In America, who else is in that? Well, actually, the only people who are like that are the Cuomos, because if you think about it, like there's a politician in office and then a media person who's covering it. So, you know, that's probably the only comparable I can think of right now where you have a media personality that's direct kin with a politician. Well, Maria Shriver and when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, I mean, but I think it's, it's a very rare position to be in. That's true. I also really found the likability thing fascinating because, you know, especially as moms, 
We're so aware of ourselves and our personalities in relation to other moms, to colleagues. Like, I feel like there's this, this added layer of complexity when you're a mom, right? Especially as your kids get older. Like, sometimes your kids are best friends with someone, and so you become friends with their parents, and then maybe that friendship dissolves. And does the friendship between you and the mom survive? Like, there's so much going on in the mom world in terms of friendships and interactions. And so I, I really enjoyed hearing about the likability as it pertained to that. And I appreciated what, what Alicia said about how she doesn't code switch at all. She's kind of like, this is who I am. Take me or leave me. Like I'm the mom who's going to be on a call at the bus stop. And that that if you like that, then let's be friends. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I think that's really great. I love it. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would so appreciate if you would leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, our social media manager, Phoebe Cranefuss, and our male perspective, Lou Burns. 